Welcome to the Church Times podcast. Try 10 issues for £10 or two months access to our website and apps also for £10. Go to churchtimes.co.uk forward slash new hyphen reader. Ben Lindsay says that it's time for the church to start talking about race. From the UK church's complicity in the transatlantic slave trade to the whitewashing of Christianity throughout history, the church has a lot to answer for when it comes to race relations, he says. Ben Lindsay is a pastor at Emmanuel Church in South London and CEO and founder of Power the Fight, a charity that empowers communities to end youth violence. His book, We Need to Talk About Race, is published on the 18th of July by SPCK. Madeline Davies interviewed Ben about the book in a cafe in South London. In the book, you talk about the impact that another book had on you. Um, that's a book called Why I'm No Longer Talking to White People About Race by Renee Edo Lodge. Um, and she's written, I can no longer engage with the gulf of an emotional disconnect that white people display when a person of colour articulates their experience. You can see their eyes shut down and harden. It's like treacle is poured into their ears, blocking up their ear canals. It's like they can no longer hear us. Um, and in your book, you talk about how when you talk to white people about race, you come across a kind of defensiveness and a dismissiveness. Um, but you still decided to write this book, um, which includes some um, addresses to white audiences. Um, so I wondered if you could explain in your own words why you are still talking to white people about race. It's <laughs> <laughs> a great question. I think it's necessary, especially if you are in a hyper-diverse community and um, a person's church is in a hyper-diverse community so you've got different people all around you different ethnicities all around you and how you engage how you do life how you do um, friendship we can't just assume that just falls into place and in my experience the best hyper-diverse multicultural relationships I've got require real work and real, real depth it's not just a given. So for me, I, I, I grew up in an area which was really diverse. I grew up in South East London, um, always had different types of friends from different backgrounds, different class, different race. And for me, I just think it's a real shame when we don't see that represented in a church context, particularly when the Bible really encourages unity. Bible talks about every tribe, every tongue, and for me, I, as much as it is exhausting, so I agree with Rene, having this conversation can be really painful, but I think it's something we should be fighting for, and therefore part of the book was just trying to work out how we do that. We published a feature recently about how um, the Episcopal Church in New York is engaging in a dialogue around slavery, repentance and reparations. And one of the women who was working on the project said, um, those who have the most trouble are those who take it personally. No one wants to be accused of being a racist. And I wondered if that's an attitude that you come across and how you respond when people make that kind of reaction. Yeah, I mean, you talk to most white people and if there's even a hint that they are seen as being racist, it's, it's the worst thing. It's like, you know, you can see their faces, it's a shock horror, how, I'm not racist, my best friend is black, or <laughs> whatever, it, whatever it is. So we definitely know that that's, it, it's, it's painful. It's a hard conversation, um, but it's a necessary one. And, and therefore, if we don't kind of, 
in, engage with it, if we don't try and allow different narratives to have the space to breathe, you're only ever going to get one perspective. And I think part of the beauty of having the opportunity to write this book is to be able to say, do you know what, the black UK perspective, which isn't everyone's perspective, but my perspective, and I think a lot of people will kind of uh, connect with it, is something which needs to be heard. That sometimes is uncomfortable reading, but we've got to have the conversation. And I think sometimes we can be a bit afraid to have that conversation. And I understand it because you just don't know what's going to come with it. You don't know. When I say something in the book where I say, when I talk about racism to a white person, it's, it's, it can be complicated because what we, you know, if I express a, an incident of racism to somebody, it, it doesn't necessarily mean that I'm linking that white person to that incident. But on the flip side, sometimes actually having that conversation will trigger memories. So it's really hard. I do sometimes feel like, you know, damned if you do, damned if you don't, if you're, if you're, if you're a white person. But I do also feel it's a necessary conversation to have. So it's not easy. It's not something which we should shy away from there. Yeah. Um, I'm glad you sort of mentioned your personal experience because um, there's a really shocking point in the book where you describe being the victim of a racist attack. And this was just before the murder of Stephen Lawrence in South East London. Then you talk about a brick being thrown through the window, the racist graffiti, the dog excrement left on the doorstep. And that must have been really difficult for you to revisit. So I wonder if you could talk a bit about um, including those things in the book and how they shaped your life and your ministry. Um, they happened at such a formative age as well. Yeah, I mean, South East London in the 80s and 90s, like maybe most parts of London, um, was not an easy place to live if you're a black person. Um, it was the rise of the National Front, yeah, the BNP, and um, yeah, particularly in South East London at, partic- at that point, it was really tough. There was a lot of overt racism and anything from name calling and some of the things that you you mentioned to the more violent life threatening stuff which could have taken my life and tragically took Stephen Lawrence's life and even before Stephen um, Robert Dougal was, was murdered in, in Eltham and um, and others so it's one of these things Roland Adams was, was killed in Thamesby so this it, it wasn't a new thing so yeah revisiting this stuff was, was difficult but I tried to look at it from a okay while this was happening what was the church response what should have been the church response and that was kind of the lens I was trying to look through if we are going to use phrases like the church is the hope of the world which people or the local church is the hope of the world which people have said well it's got to be the hope for local issues and it's interesting there's parallels now when you look at the rise of the far right and the whole situation we've got going on with Brexit and just the, I think it's like a 70% rise in hate crime. I have the same question. So where's the church response to this? How do we handle this, this kind of thing? So it was, it was not easy to revisit this stuff. I think it's safe to say that I'm probably still traumatized by some of this stuff. Like I'm, I'm all right. But I'm, I'm, I'm probably a little bit traumatised just revisiting this stuff. But I think it was necessary just to show a bit of a human side. So this isn't just theory, this is lived experience. So I think it was important. Yeah. 
Um, you also talk about how um, some of the stuff that you're on the receiving end of has been described as a microaggression. Yeah. And I was wondering if you could explain that term for readers and listeners who aren't familiar with it and just explain why it's a helpful term. What does it mean? Yeah, a, a microaggression is exactly what it is. It's something which is small and for some may be seen as insignificant, but it's still an aggression. And um, in my experience, there's been plenty of times when white people have done white, have done microaggressions to me and they've not even realised sometimes they have realised but a lot of the time it's um, it's not always obvious so for me it's, it's examples of I use an example of uh, in the intro where a church leader basically commented on my, on my on my hairstyle long ago when I had I had hair I can't, no one can see this but I have no hair now but I had a high top and the guy was like, a uh, church leader said, I was at a basketball thing. And I'm like, where did that come from? Because I don't play basketball. And uh, so what is it in your, in, in your consciousness which has related my hairstyle to basketball and it's an assumption that I play basketball? Now, am I being oversensitive? Or was that actually a slightly, you know, is that a microaggression? So it's these types of things which some people are like, oh, you, you know, it's a bit of banter. And I'm like, yeah, okay, but if that happens every time I'm in a white space, if that happens every time I'm in church, if that happens every time, you know, I've got congregational members who they tell uh, our welcome team their name and every single week that black person's name still gets forgotten. Or mispronounced. Now, are you doing that deliberately? Or are you maybe, maybe not? You know, or you don't quite know how to relate. So we're just going to banter and joke and banter and joke. And you know, one man's banter is the next person's kind of like you know you're being offensive. So it's this type of thing where, of course, we like to banter. We can joke, but my thing is, if you don't know me, like I can banter with anybody when there's a relationship. But if I if I don't know you. Um, you've got to be really careful and I think we've got to be very careful when we start talking about race jokes anyway you know unless you're a paid stand-up comedian yeah. <laughs> and even then we can probably challenge some stuff so yeah. I think the microaggression for me is something which it's not necessarily obvious stuff but I think if you're a person of colour you would have experienced yeah. this subtle dig mm. this subtle uh, abuse and it spills up and builds up and you're like, what do I do with this? Where do I go with this? Something I really liked about the book is that you include examples of really honest but difficult conversations that you've had with friends. So even when you have a long-standing relationship, touching on these areas can be tricky. And I, I wonder if sometimes people avoid talking about race because they're worried about getting it wrong, they're worried about using the wrong word. Or, yeah. um, how do you get over that question? Should we... Is it a question going away and educating yourself so you don't say the wrong thing, or does that have to be some grace about people are gonna gonna get things wrong? I think both. I, I think you definitely need grace. I think I wouldn't be a very good Christian if I didn't say that, and it's something I believe in. We've got to have grace for people. I think we, from a black perspective, I, I always try and separate any conversation or any reaction to a race conversation in two categories what you're saying is, is it ignorance or is it malice now if it's ignorance 
and you honestly didn't know or you, it's not your lived experience and we can work with that all day long and we can have the conversation if it falls into the malice category where you're actually doing something out of hate or I don't really want to be around you <laughs> and uh, it doesn't mean that I can't we can't reconcile have the conversation but that's your it's your problem so for me I think those type of conversations the, the, the conversations I've had I mean it's a weird one with my white friends my good white friends it's not like we ever have to really have that now we're going to talk about racism are you ready okay let's go one two it's not really that I just think that the more you live with people my best friends pick up the stuff my best white friends tend to be the ones where we have a shared culture anyway so it's kind of we grew up in the same area or we're into the same things or we witness the same stuff it's like my white friends who were in my year at school when Stephen Lawrence died, it's not like they didn't see that. It's not like it didn't impact them. It's not like I didn't witness that. We lived that same experience. So it does mean that we can, when I talk to like one of my, my closest friends who's, who's white, who's in my school, when we talk about Stephen Lawrence, we're saying the same stuff. And um, so, yeah, I think it's difficult, but we've got to have the conversation. So one of the interviews that I found really fascinating in the book was one with Jahazel, um, who kind of denounced his Christian faith in 2015. Um, I wondered if you could first tell us a bit about um, who he is, um, and then secondly, um, do you think the path that he went down was one that you could have gone down, and, and why did you choose a different one? Yeah, Jahazel um, is, was one of the biggest kind of Christian rappers. Um, somebody who, when I was, when I became a Christian, there was a, there's was, there was a few UK Christian rappers, and he was one of them. Incredible artist, um, really some deep theological truths in his music. And then I think it was 2015 he basically denounced his faith, and it, it caused massive ripples in, in the Christian community. Um, so. I've known him for a while, in not like close, but I've, I've known him from afar um, for a while. So when I got in contact with him, I just said, listen, I'm writing this book, I'd love to just to get your steer on. I've never been able, I've never been in a circle where I could say to him, why? So for me, when we had that conversation, some of the things which came out was like, you know what? In a nutshell, there was questions he had, which it wasn't so much like you couldn't answer them. You weren't even, people weren't even prepared to have the conversation. Things like, you know, so can you explain to me about the white, why we have this depiction of white Jesus? Or can we talk about like the roots of scripture, Bible, church in Africa? And what he would say is like, let's talk about slavery. You know, this is quite a big thing as a black person's doing. And he, he was just, he wasn't getting the answers. Now you'd have to talk to him more <clears throat> to find it out. But the, the bits I was able to put in the book, it was really clear that there wasn't anywhere, people weren't giving him the opportunity to, to speak. Now, unfortunately for me, some of the stuff he came out was that is exactly what some of my black friends would be saying. They would be like, Ben, how can you be following this this faith and it depicts a white Jesus, a white man's religion? What about the transatlantic slave trade? Do you know, what about the representation of, of, 
or the lack of representation of black leaders. So for me, it was like his voice, Jahazil's voice, was a voice which many of my friends had. The type of conversations I will have in barbershops all the time. So it was a real drive for me. It's like, well, what about a transatlantic slave trade? So yeah, for real. And if I'm brutally honest, there was a moment when I was writing this book, I said, I'm not sure I will even still be a Christian at the end of this process. Because if I, re I had to go to some very dark places. I mean, chapter three was a very difficult, you know, on slavery, very difficult chapter to write. So fortunately, the conclusion I came from was like, it's not, it's not God, it's not Jesus, it's humankind's interpretation of that, which has caused a problem. But as an example, I know I needed to go, so for example, I found out if the question is, I'm not gonna, I can't engage with church because of the transatlantic slave trade, I would have been the question to uh, someone of Islamic faith to say, well, in the ninth century, there was the trans-Saharan slave trade. And if that's not stopping you following the faith of your choice, why should this be stopping me? And it's all these types of things which I didn't know. I was like, I'm, I'm studying this stuff. I'm like, oh, wow, that was a surprise. But I think Jahazel's experience was is not an uncommon one. To the question, what stopped me from going down that route? I don't know. <laughs> I think there's been many times when I thought about it, if I'm honest, over the last 20 years of being a Christian, there have been many times when I'm like, I'm not getting my, my questions answered. I think what helped me was that I always, along my journey of faith, I had a really good mentor. A guy I mentioned in the book called Owen Hilson. So anytime I did have those type of questions, I could talk to him. Also, there was a group of us as like black young Christians at that time who all came to faith around the same time. We also had each other. So we were also having these questions and talking about this stuff. Weirdly, I never felt I could go to my white leaders to talk about this stuff, but there was other people around. So maybe that was one of the reasons, but it's, it's a tricky one. And I think it's a tricky one for a lot of people. In the book you say, for racial reconciliation to be achieved, for radical solidarity to be realised in the UK church, black forgiveness of white racial wrongs cannot be the only answer. White confession repentance also needs to happen. Um, and one of the, the quotes in that feature I mentioned about the church in New York was that apology without cost is empty. Um, I know it's a huge question, but I wondered what you believe needs to happen in terms of what would be, um, what would be genuine repentance? Yeah, I mean it's it's a it's a complicated question. So we can whittle it right down to finance, and I think when people have tried to do that, they've worked out the cost of the transatlantic slave trade is in its trillions. So unless we're looking to cripple our financial system, that's not going to happen, is it? But I think. I agree with what you just said. I don't think an apology is enough, considering that the impact of the transatlantic slave trade is still being played out today. It's been played out in our banking system. It's been played out in the resources which have been taken from Africa. It's been taken. It's been. It's been played out in the fact that intergenerational wealth for many people has been a product of the money which the UK government gave to uh, slave owners and not slaves. So, if it was a simple case of, 
oh, slavery happened and everyone's, no one's been impacted by it, that's one thing. But the fact is, people still are. But then we know in the Bible, it's complicated because it talks about, you know, the, the sins of the father not being revisited and all this type of stuff. And it's so, okay, where do we go? But the Bible also talks about justice. So if there is something going on where it's, like, it's unjust in the, in the communal environment, the church has the right to step up. So it's complex. But for me, I think there needs to be a conversation about reparation. I think it should be, we should have a conversation about finance, but also we should have another conversation about what can the church also do to give back in different ways? What can the church do to, to give back to the poorer communities um, in the UK? What can the church do specifically around um, encouraging church leadership for people of colour? What can the church do specifically around social action for issues that disproportionately impact black communities? If you take the uh, race disparity audit and you look at where people of colour, particularly black Caribbean people, fall in those, those issues, whether it's education, exclusions, criminal justice systems, stop and search, mental health, all these things, we, we understand that this isn't just about, when we talk about racism, we're not just talking about, you call me the N-word, we're talking about structures which are, can be traced right back to the transatlantic slave trade, which need to be destroyed. So therefore, can the church actually pay back in the sense of standing uh, for justice and uh, bringing some type of justice to this situation. I think reparation is, is more than just finance, but has to include that conversation as well. You've spent a lot of years in the New Frontiers denomination, um, where most of the leaders are white men, um, including some in congregations that are majority black. Um, and there are some really encouraging um, stories in the book um, about the ways in which your own leadership was enabled and encouraged. Um, so I wonder if you could say a bit about that journey to leadership because you're still um, kind of quite an unusual example. Yeah, um, I mean, first thing I'll say is that I, I never thought I'd be a leader, which probably says it, says it all because some, what I find that some of my friends and my peers, it's almost like they knew they were going to be church leaders from the moment they, were, they came out of the womb. And it's kind of like, wow, where did that confidence come from? <laughs> I didn't think that. And, and that's a lot to do with relationship. I think we have this term calling, which, you know, yes and no kind of thing. And you have opportunities. And I suppose for me, I, I got saved in a church called King's Church. It's called King's Church Catford then, but it's King's Church London. And I, I suppose the moment we, me and my wife were saved there, uh, guy I mentioned earlier, Owen, kind of gave us opportunities to lead alpha tables and lead small groups and connect groups and all this type of stuff. And that was him taking a, a punt on, on me and my wife, you know? Um, would that have happened if I was in another church where I didn't have uh, a black advocate? who'd already smashed down certain doors, I don't know, you know, if I'm honest. So it's one of the things I say in the book is that for black leadership to flourish, we can't just have it on the same level as white leadership. There are some things which we might need to do to encourage black leaders to flourish in white spaces. So my journey, but then saying that, 
you know, I'm now leading. I'm now one of the pastors and one of the leaders of Emmanuel Church London. And you know, uh, the guy who leads that, this guy called Stu Stu Gibbs, and very quickly, him and his wife Libby kind of saw leadership in me, and were not afraid to give me those opportunities. But that leadership was also birth. That was birthed in a king setting where Owen was really, really pushing. So again question is if they came and I was just not a leader would they have even seen that leadership maybe maybe not I don't know but I think it's all in, interconnected so my journey's been a funny one but I'm here and um, I don't think I'm going anywhere so yeah and um, something I really liked about the book is you talk about the need for immersive spaces um, and somewhere where you can kind of put burdens down and how it's not possible to be constantly um, sort of carrying those burdens. Um, and it made me think of the fact that through social media, we're now exposed to a lot of footage of brutality against black people, particularly in the States. And I've also heard people talk about the need to celebrate images of black success and happy black families and, and counter some of that imagery that can be really kind of traumatising. Um, so I wondered how you yourself get that balance between wanting to be a witness to injustice and brutality and kind of protecting yourself as well from kind of being really traumatised. First of all, I'll say it's not just the US. I mean, there's, there's, there's many images which I'm seeing in the UK, whether it's police brutality, whether it's young people being stabbed. Um, there's a lot of trauma which I think we see as black people just on social media which if we're not careful will impact us and affect us in different ways so first and foremost you have to protect yourself it's not everything that you need to be kind of engaging with um, for me that immersive space is really important for me first and foremost I get that in my home I get that with my wife I get that with my children I get that in a space where I can just be unapologetically myself but I also get that with some, I've got a very good network of friends who just get me and get the situation without me having to explain. I don't always want to just start from zero and get to 10. It's like, I can just go somewhere, we can go for meals, we can go to concerts, we can hang out, go for a drink. And it's just like, yeah, it's just a nod. Yeah, I know, yeah, you know, yeah, let's encourage. And it's, it's a beautiful thing and, and it, it has saved me. It's saved me knowing that, you know, if I'm brutally honest, we've got to understand that it's exhausting. It's really exhausting when you are a minority in a, in a, a white space where you keep seeing the same stuff over and over. You're getting blocked over, you're seeing, a prejudice over and over again you're seeing discrimination over and over again and you're like screaming out saying did you, does anyone else see this and rarely other people do or people don't take it seriously so to have that space where you can just be like you can lay it all down is for me it's really important and I would encourage people to do that and when I sit in the immersive space it's not always right as a black person you just surround yourself by black people because it's not just that I think it's it's important to find people who share the same culture as you, uh, and that's not always necessarily about skin colour, but find your tribe, <laughs> and it's not like stick to your tribe, because it kind of contradicts what I'm talking about in the book, but you, you need a space where you can just be yourself, and it recharges you, and you're like, okay, cool, I'm ready for the world again, 
so yeah. I was thinking one of the spaces where I think um, conversations around race are being triggered is um, through cinema and I was particularly um, thinking about um, films by Jordan Peele like Get Out. Mm. Um, I wondered what you kind of make of his work and whether you think that has triggered conversations that the church needs to be having. Yeah I mean I think there's a lot like Jordan Peele stuff is is incredible um, and it's great I think what we're finding now is that this, this black narrative these black stories which we all know as black people is now being given the opportunity to go out into the big wild world for other people to see as black people we're, we're not a monolith so therefore it's so important that Jordan Peele can tell his story um, and other people can to share their stories and it's not some of them may well contradict each other that's okay you know it's alright that I am I can write a book like this but somebody else who grew up next to me can write another book and it, it may completely contradict but we don't seem to argue that in a white context but when it comes to black people we tend to either be like well you, you're the radical or you're you know you're like the opposite <laughs> you know you're the Carlton Banks from Fresh Prince and it's kind of a well, no 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 there's, there's different stories in between so I think they allow those conversations I think there's something going on in literature at the moment where whether it's Rene or it's like Rene Lodge or Afro Hirsch or, or Carla um, Kahindi Andrews there's so many uh, books out there now where we've got no excuse if anyone says I just I don't know where to look or I don't need to I don't understand it's like honestly go into any Waterstones or anything you can find a, a perspective on what it's like the lived black experience I think what my frustration was that everything I was reading I was like this is cool this is great I'm, I'm, I'm loving it I'm loving it but it's not touching on church because I'm like I think there's an experience there and even my book it's not the not a complete experience. I don't really talk about the black church because that's not my experience. But I think, and I look forward to when somebody does write that book. But it feels like now we can we can talk about this stuff and have that conversation in a way which um, I don't think was available before. I talking to some of my family members, they would say, "You you have to write this book because we can talk like you're." speaking like 10 years ago 20 years ago it couldn't happen so you've got to go and tell those stories and that was that was nice to hear um, so yeah um, the book's dedicated to four um, young men and I wondered if you could say a bit about um, who they are and, and why you why you dedicated it to them yeah no definitely I mean these young men who I I've worked with um, I've engaged with these are people who, unfortunately, I've I've I worked with when uh, they were young. Uh, Emmanuel was a was a, a young man who I, I did football training with when he was when he was about sixteen. Uh, knew his mum and he was murdered outside a police station. Um, Nicholas was a, a young man who I started mentoring actually when he was nine and then he lost his life to youth violence when he was like 16. Shackless was another young man who um, I worked with and quite a, a big case uh, known as the Honey Trap case. Uh, he, he 
he, he died or was murdered in brutal circumstances in 2007, 2008. And then Myron was a young person who, who I knew since he was one. Uh, know the family very well. So I, for me, the reason I dedicated the book to them is because well, there's a couple of reasons really. One, I knew these kids before they were headlines. I saw them smiling, I saw them being children and what the world may know of them is just headlines and statistics. So I think that's, that's one reason. I think the other reason is a reminder for me that actually I do believe the church can engage in this issue, particularly around youth violence, in a way which we haven't done before. So for me, part of the reason why I launched my charity, Power to Fight, was to equip, empower, train anyone really whether it's a faith group, arts organisations, statutory, training equipment to be part of the answer. But if we take church, church currently has three things which this UK government do not have. Volunteers, buildings and resources. So if we can somehow get everybody on the same page, train and equip, we could be a massive answer. So as an example, if we are, if we agree and research tells you that the most dangerous hour for a young person or hours are the direct hours after school and we know that there's no youth service there, 1.6 billion have come off our government in the last five years, <clears throat> well, what, would it be amazing if, if churches suddenly were equipped and trained and opened their doors to be part of the solution? And it's that type of thing. So those names are important to me because I've worked with those kids and some of them I knew, I knew the families very well. But it's also a reminder that the church can do more than we think. Jesus Christ can do more than we, it's possibly, we possibly imagine. But for that to happen, we've, we've really got to dig deep in understanding what the community is suffering and dealing with. Yeah. Um, and just finally, I wondered if you could say how writing this book has changed you. I think it's given me more hope. Uh, I think I was a bit hopeless in at the beginning didn't know where I was going to go with it um, it's given me a clearer perspective on the unity the church can bring I think we are in such a polarized time far right growing across Europe confusion around Brexit um, youth violence poverty rates are ridiculous um, and therefore to really create something which I hope or I think is hopeful and to say listen no 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 there is light and guess what we have the vehicle to be uh, part of that solution for me just to have this is, a, is really important and I think can make a major difference I think it was important for me to write this book because I've got children and I don't want them to go through the same stuff I went through so if it can be a bit of a manual to help them or help people for the next generation. I think it's important for this book for the people coming behind me, some incredible young men and women who may not yet have hit the barriers which I've hit, but to be able to know there, was a, there are ways and mechanisms. I think it's important also, I'm happy about this book because finally we get an opportunity to have a conversation which I believe needs to be had. And, and if we can just have the conversation, that's the beginning, isn't it really? So yeah, it's changed me. I think I'm more hopeful, I'm excited. I think, I don't think it's arrogant for me to say what I'm about to say. 
and I'm not just saying this because I wrote it, but I honestly believe this is possibly one of the most important books for the UK church. Not because I'm saying it's like the most amazing book, but I think the actual conversation is one we've not had for a long time on a national level. So if it can happen, well, let's, let's do it and let's prayerfully go through what I've said and prayerfully see where we can make a change. So I'm excited about what will come with it. And um, yeah, hopefully we can, in years to come, look at this as a pivotal moment for the UK church and we can see some real sustainable change. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Church Times podcast. You can find more news, analysis, comment and book reviews on our website, churchtimes.co.uk. If you are not yet a subscriber to the Church Times, you can try your first 10 issues for just £10. You'll get the paper delivered to your door every Friday, plus full access to our website and digital archive. Go to churchtimes.co.uk forward slash subscribe to find out more. The music for this podcast was provided by Sought After Sounds. Tune in next Friday for the next episode.